the session feels a bit like an exam. So R is greater than G, discuss in 15 minutes starting now. <laughs> uh, well, you know, you're faced with an exam questions. How do you start? You start with a platitude, which hopefully is true. So this is a stupendous achievement. Did I say platitude? No. Um, so it's a majestic panorama of the rise and fall and rise again of the wealthy over two centuries. And it has a bearing on so many questions. For example, I'm very interested in landscape paintings in the 19th century. And I've been scratching my head. Who bought these paintings? There are tens of thousands of them. Well, now we know the French elite is immensely wealthy. So they buy these paintings. Uh, so. I think the prime achievement is a rich descriptive account uh, of the inequality of income and wealth. But you know, something is lost in this account as well because of that focus on the top. So the top are literally the only ones that count. And the rest are written out of that particular history. And after reading the whole book, uh, I had this sense that uh, I start to scratch my head, am I in the top 1%? Well, possibly not. Actually, globally I am, but uh, that's another story. Uh, so I think that whole history from below dimension is not present there. Uh, but he's not content with uh, a description. He also wants to uh, provide an explanation. And the most intuitive one is this historical regularity, R is greater than G. We've had this on the screen. Now, that in itself is a perfectly simple mechanism of concentration. That in itself would create a concentration of wealth. We don't need anything else. And he could have stopped with that. But if he had stopped with that, then he wouldn't get promoted. So for an economist, that's not enough. This insight needs to be modeled as well. And so he applies a standard toolkit model, which is a neoclassical production function with two factors, capital and labor, which are substitutes for each other. They paid according to their marginal product. Now, when you keep labor constant, every additional unit of capital increases the rate of return for capital. That's the crucial analytical assumption. And elasticity of substitution greater than one most of the time. So that is what drives the model. Uh, so this is really a general equilibrium, a neoclassical general equilibrium model. Two homogeneous factors, no money, no government, no natural resources. And it's open to the usual criticisms of such exercises, which, put briefly, no such world could ever exist. Uh, since it's a book about capital, a particular problem is raised by Piketty's core concept of capital. Now, capital, as Jim says, stands for two things. It's both a factor of production and it's also a store of wealth. Uh, for the historical account, which I think is the main thing here, he uses the, uh, the store of wealth concept. But uh, for the production function, he uses the very same data uh, as the factor input. Uh, but the two <coughs> concepts are not the same. They're not consistent with each other. And the wealth concept, which is taken by him from the national accounts, is not suitable to do the job in the production function. So 
this model cannot work uh, except under very heroic assumptions. Now, do we need this model? What do we need it for? You might say it's supposed to explain the data. Uh, well, if this model is meant as a prediction, even if only as a prediction of the past, it fails for about one third of the time. So in my <coughs> reckoning, this isn't terribly good. Uh, but it isn't a prediction. It's a tendency. If other things had remained equal, the uh, Piketty result would have been the outcome. Now, this is a respectable view in the philosophy of economics, uh, which is, comes from or originates with John Stuart Mill, who said that economics could, only, could not predict, it could only describe tendencies. And this has recently been revived. There's Hausmann, Nancy Cartwright. <coughs> Nancy Cartwright says this is true even of physics, but let's put that to one side. Uh, so the trouble with tendencies is that they're offset by countervailing and confounding forces. What that means is that the theory is impossible to test. Uh, he has no theory of the confounders. Uh, so it's a weak explanation. You, know, you, cannot, you don't know whether the result you see is a consequence of the model or the result of the confounders. Uh, he has a theory of inequality, but he doesn't have a theory of equality. There is a trend of greater equality throughout a large part of the period. There's no theory for that. There is a theory of equality out there. It's called social democracy. I spoke about this uh, before lunch. Uh, the trouble about it is that it doesn't count as theory in economics. And the reason it doesn't count as theory is that uh, it does not accept the two components of neoclassical theory, which are the self-interested individual and the invisible hand. So it works in other ways. I'd say it's equally respectable, but not if you're a professor of economics. Uh, now, Piketty himself, I think, doesn't take his model too seriously. Uh, he realizes that it cannot do all the work. <coughs> so uh, with a kind of wink, he introduces uh, two other elements. One is bargaining, and the other is taxation. Uh, he sometimes said that he doesn't believe in uh, marginal revenue, for example, that, that factors get paid their marginal revenue. So it's not entirely consistent. So he, what he does is a kind of pick and mix of arguments that suit him. What I called, again, in the uh, talk before lunch, I call this a hybrid theory. Now, these hybrid theories are ways which economics uh, deals with inconsistency. Economics is shot through in inconsistencies. Uh, so you touch all bases, and there's some, something for everybody there. And it's not unreasonable. It's just inconsistent. So you, you know, you might say inconsistency is perhaps uh, given excessive <coughs> respect. One way of thinking about this would be to say that this is a kind of sophisticated agnosticism. And it's exactly the same method that's used by the Nobel Prize Committee to give out Nobel Prizes in economics, in that <coughs> they can have two people on the stage in the same year that hold diametrically opposite opinions. Uh, they've done this several times. And the reason they do this is that that is what economics is like. It just doesn't add up. 
Um, so let me place Piketty in the context of the history of economics in the last 50 years. I have one bullet point here which says, failure of the general equilibrium project. We could have a one-year course about this, but we won't. Uh, the response of the economics profession to this has been to turn its back on general equilibrium uh, and to engage in what can loosely be called control experiment. There's been a whole big empirical turn in economics. Most of the work in economics is now empirical. Most of it takes the form of controlled experiments. Uh, Piketty goes even further than that. He dismisses controlled experiments as what he says is a scientific illusion. Uh, it often leads to the neglect of history and of the fact that historical experience remains our principal source of knowledge. So here's another hybrid theory. So we can throw history into the mix as well. Uh, now, this will only alarm you if you think that consistency is everything. Uh, now, there is a problem with another problem with uh, the uh, book. Had in a, let's, let's do counterfactual history. Had inequality not soared again after 1980, we would say that social democracy had won and that Piketty was wrong. Uh, history could have continued on its previous course. What that means is that explaining the resurgence of inequality since the 1970s is crucial for Piketty. It all hangs, really, on how you explain the last 30 or 40 years. And there is a big critical literature by now, and by and large, it mostly focuses on this period. And most of the critics say that there's something wrong with housing. Uh, even Jim says that. Uh, so there's scores of articles that say there's something wrong with housing. So I'll give you my version of what's wrong with housing. And it's not only housing, it's also money. So there's no money in Piketty. This is very odd because money is neutral. There's a money neutrality assumption there. Uh, now, this is strange in a book, the topic of which is capital, in which saving is so central. You know, So the really active thing is that people lend money. That's what saving is. You lend money. Uh, and implicitly, he operates in a kind of gold standard world. So let me give you a monetary interpretation of the Piketty story. In the 19th century, the priority is price stability. That's a gold standard. And that externalizes the shocks and the risk to society. In response, the interwar and post-war welfare states sacrifice price stability in order to reduce social risk. And the new right restores the priority of price stability and externalizes the social risk. So this is a monetary explanation of the Piketty data. <coughs> Let's combine it with the housing story. So uh, the deregulation of finance in the 1970s removes the constraints on lending. Uh, yeah. Housing collateral makes both lending and borrowing attractive, uh, both to lend to borrow against housing and to lend against housing is attractive because you think you have a secure asset. Uh, and borrowers think they have a rising asset, but they forget that the assets only rise because of the lending. Without the lending, the assets would not rise. Uh, now, rising debt service, which happens, shifts the income from consumers to the lenders. 
so what you have is a savings glut, that's the lenders, uh, combined with underconsumption by the borrowers, and that dries up demand and leads to collapse, which we've had in 2008. So that's a housing and money story. Uh, social Democrats, like New Labour, I'm not sure they deserve to be called uh, Social Democrats, but they said that's okay because we'll tax the lenders. But effectively, they're actually, it's, they found a way of taxing households because by taxing the city, they're actually taxing households. And this is also an R greater than G story. So does it matter that it's a different story from the one that Piketty is telling? I'd say yes. And the reason is that if the production function story is not true, then the wealth tax is not the best remedy. Uh, maybe we need to look for another remedy. So this is uh, the last slide. Uh, how about another story? We could tell a story of norms. First bourgeois liberal norms, then social democratic norms, then neoliberal norms, from high taxation to so-called optimal taxation, uh, from taxing the unearned increment extra to giving them discounts on taxation. Uh, furthermore, it suggests that even if there are innate tendencies out there uh, to concentration, they are offset by norms, by politics, and by policies. Uh, I have to say here as an historian that uh, Piketty is also a little casual with the evidence. Uh, and uh, it can be criticized at various points, but he deserves the highest praise for resetting the agenda. So we're back where we started. But uh, despite his neoclassical backsliding, uh, we should also thank him for underlying the importance of history. As he says, quote, the imperfect lessons that we can draw from history are of inestimable, irreplaceable value, and no controlled experiment will ever be able to equal them. That's a good point to end. The script is complete. Thank you very much. Thank you, Abner.